Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, the passage on which that hymn was based. It's on page 1163 in your pew Bibles as we come to the uh, conclusion of our study of the Lord's Prayer and of the Heidelberg Catechism on Lord's Day 52 on the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. We consider that in connection with these words here, Ephesians chapter 6, at verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You can turn to page 896 in the back of your hymnal. Page 896, where we um, consider questions 127 through 129 of the Heidelberg Catechism, a faithful summary of what the Bible teaches about our dependence on the Lord amidst the attacks of our enemy. We'll read these three questions responsively, starting with question 127. What does the sixth petition mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. Question 128, how do you conclude this prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This means we have made all these petitions of you because as our all-powerful king, 
you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. What does that little word amen express? Amen means this shall truly and surely be for it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. Congregation, we come here to the end of our study of the Lord's Prayer, and it's interesting what our, our catechism here leads us to confess about the posture of our prayer, that it's one of weakness and total reliance, which of course makes sense. To, to pray is to admit to God that we need him to act for us, as the, the psalmist so often says, as we've even sung this morning, that he is our strength. And so that prayer can't really be prayed from a, a position or a posture of supposed strength in ourselves, but must be prayed from a position of weakness, of, of empty-handedness and dependence, which is true not only when we ask for our daily bread as poor beggars dependent on our Father's provision, but, but this same posture of weakness, of empty-handedness and dependence is true also when we pray, lead us not into temptation. For we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And so we need God to uphold us, to, to lift us, to hold us up and make us strong by the power of his Holy Spirit. So that we might not be defeated in this spiritual fight, a fight that Ephesians chapter 6, which we just read, acknowledges and calls us to fight in the Lord's strength. And so this passage that we, we read just a moment ago, it, it informs our understanding of what it means to, to fight this spiritual battle. It teaches us three things. Um, first of all, it teaches us to confess our weakness. Second, to then rely on God's strength. And third, to pray in the spirit. The way that we engage in this spiritual battle is first and foremost on our knees in prayer. And paradoxically, the scriptures teach that the posture of our warfare is one of bended knee. Let's look at me first this morning at the confession of our weakness that we see, especially in that first part of Lord's Day 52, that we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment. This is what we're confessing in the sixth petition, that we need God to guard us from temptation, that we need him to uphold us and make us strong. And if you look carefully at our passage from Ephesians 6, we see really this same admission from the Apostle Paul, where notice he doesn't say, finally, brothers, be strong in your own might, but he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Um, twice he emphasized in the Lord and the strength of his might, that it's on, on the Lord whom we depend. And that verb that, that he uses to, to, to call us to, to be strong is, is a, a passive verb that, that can be translated something like a be strengthened or 
be made strong. Much like what Paul says earlier in the book of Ephesians, in that, uh, that beautiful prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, where he says in verse 16, in this prayer of the church, that God may grant you to be strengthened with the power of his spirit. Now, Paul is here saying the same thing. He's not calling them to pull up their bootstraps and be strong in their own strength. But he's first of all conf- calling them to confess their weakness and then to be strengthened by God's strength. I was struck as we were, were singing number 540 just before this, how beautifully the, the words of Charles Wesley penned some 300 years ago um, capture the, the very meaning of this passage, that it's, it's not about us being strong in our own strength, but dependence on the Lord and on his strength. And that's done, according to verse 11, by heeding this instruction to put on the armor of God. According to the logic of, of the passage, the way that we do verse 10 to be strengthened by the Lord's might is by putting on the, the armor that he himself gives. And notice it's not the armor of our own making, but it's the armor of God. The armor that is supplied by him in order to account for our weakness. The very language of that, that genitive, the armor of God suggests that our strength and defense for the battle lies in something outside of us. Now, one commentator says of this this whole passage, if we think that the Christian life is simply a matter of, of human effort or exertion, of us being strong enough in our own resources, then we have misread the nature of the campaign and will not be able to resist the evil one. Ephesians 6 is not about you being strong enough, but about God being strong for you. About his armor defending you against the schemes of the devil. This first enemy who who we meet in verse 11, who's then described in verse 12 as no small foe. As we often sing in mighty fortress is our God on earth is not his equal. If you, you can recall from a year or so ago when we, we studied the book of Job, that, that language on earth is not his equal. Uh, Luther is actually drawing from that, that description of, of Leviathan in Job 41, this terrifying monster that is a, a picture of, of the, the spiritual forces of, of cosmic evil. This is no small foe. But we wrestle, Paul says, against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Paul is here speaking of a very real enemy that we cannot defeat on our own. Who question 127 says, never stops attacking us. One pastor put it well when he said, we are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest, outfight the strongest, and outwit the wisest. Now, this is the evil one against whom we pray in this sixth petition. He is a very real enemy. And yet we confess that he is not our only enemy. But this how verse 12 also speaks of this present darkness. Rather, translations like the, the NIV say this dark world. 
As you see, Ephesians chapter 6 doesn't only affirm this singular enemy, the devil, but also the world. Which, as Ian Duguid says in his, his book on the armor of God, is in many respects Satan's playground. Our enemy is not only the devil, but also the world around us, and even our own flesh within us, of which Paul has spoken at length back in, in chapter 4, are, are three sworn enemies who never stop attacking us. Even, and, and perhaps especially, in the mundane. It's interesting, as you think about even the context of this passage, when, when Paul transitions now and says, finally, brothers, be strong. This is coming just on the heels of, of chapter 5, verse 22 through 6, verse 9, which is all this, this description uh, about the Christian home, about relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. I think one of the things that we see even from the context in which this, this section on spiritual armor and spiritual warfare is given is that even and perhaps especially there, the confines of our own home, in the mundane, Sunday night or Monday morning, it's there that the enemy is attacking us. And so what question 127 and Ephesians 6 are, are reminding us then is of the, the nature and scope of this spiritual conflict in which we're involved. It's calling us to not be naive about the, the reality of this holy war that we're in and about the strength of our foes. And again, I think this is one of the reasons why the, the Psalms are so useful for us in our spiritual walk because they are constantly reminding us of the presence of of enemies, whether that be our singular enemy, the serpent, whether that be the, the unbelieving world around us, or whether that be even our own sinful flesh. Uh, these psalms that so often um, uh, speak of the, the reality or the, the presence of these enemies, and then call us to cry out for God to crush them, to defeat them. As one pastor said in a book on these psalms of warfare, he, he asked, have we lost sight of the fact that we are at war with the enemies of God? Have we been guilty, perhaps, of, of playing at Christianity in our comfortable churches, exchanging warm fuzzies and pleasant chit-chat? If so, it's time to wake up. And those somewhat uncomfortable psalms are one of the means by which God wakes us. Reminding us, as we see in this passage, and as we confess in Lord's Day 52, that our, our three sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and even our own sinful flesh, never stop attacking us. And so we need God to make us strong. That's the next thing I want to look at. First, this passage calls us to confess our weakness. Then it calls us to rely on God's strength. That he would uphold us and to make us strong by the power of his spirit so that we might not be defeated in this spiritual fight but firmly resist our enemies until we finally win a complete victory. Of course, the way that God makes us strong, according to this passage, is by, by fitting us with the armor that he himself provides. That, that's part of what it means when it says the armor of God. This is the armor that he himself gives us. And yet, not only the armor that he himself gives us, but this is also the armor that he himself has already worn. 
What I think is, is perhaps the most striking aspect of this passage is, is how you can go through, through every one of these pieces of armor that Paul lists and see how each of them have already been worn by our champion. You might have noticed as we've been singing and reading through those, those different prophecies from Isaiah in our, our service this morning, several of these pieces of armor have been mentioned in messianic prophecies. They take the belt of truth. We sang of that in our pre-service song from Isaiah 11 about that messianic servant of the Lord, that that shoot from Jesse who who would come from the the stump of Jesse in righteousness and justice as king who it says would have the the belt of truth bound around his waist. The version that we sang of that from number 302, it uses the word belt, but if you look at the ESV, it it says righteousness and, and faithfulness will be the belt of his loins, but But significantly, the the Greek Septuagint uses the word truth. I think Paul is is picking up on on that Greek version of Isaiah 11 here in Ephesians 6, and he's calling us to put on the belt that Christ himself has already worn. Likewise, the breastplate of righteousness and that helmet of salvation. We heard of those in our assurance of pardon from Isaiah 59 where God looked and and he saw that there was no one to save, that there was no one to to intercede for his people in their sin, where their sin had caused this great chasm between the God of heaven and us sinful men. And so it says his own arm then brought salvation. That's a reference to Christ and the, the incarnation coming to save us. And it says that he put on righteousness as his breastplate, and he, he put on his head a helmet of salvation. Again, we see that Christ has already worn these garments that Paul is here calling us to put on. Are the shoes of the gospel of peace. That's a, a clear reference to Isaiah 52, which we heard in our, our call to worship, another messianic prophecy just on, on the, the, the heels of Isaiah 53, a passage that ultimately looks forward to Christ. The one who will not only purchase our salvation as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but as we heard last week in Luke chapter 4, the one who will also proclaim that salvation as our chief prophet who never missed an opportunity to proclaim this gospel of peace that he himself came to provide. Likewise, the the sword of the spirit. I wasn't was able to work this into our liturgy, but Isaiah 49 um, says in, in one of those four servant songs about the Messiah to come, it says that his mouth will be made strong like a sharp sword. In Revelation 1 and Revelation 19, um, John picks up on that same theme, and it, it says from Christ's mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, the word of God. And then the shield of faith that also points us to God himself, who you remember says to Abram in Genesis chapter 15, fear not, Abram, for I am your shield and very great reward. And what does God then go on to do? He goes on to cut a a covenant with Abram where where God alone passes through those cut-up animals as if to say, if either one of us is unfaithful, I will become like those dead animals. And in that moment, you could say, pronounced a death sentence on his son. Meaning in the context of Genesis 15, when God says, Abram, I am your shield, it is through Christ that he is that shield. Are we saying from Psalm 28 about God showing mercy to his people and being their shield, that mercy too is given in Christ. 
Every piece of this armor points us to Christ who already won the battle. And so to borrow Paul's language from Romans 13, this whole section is saying no different than what Paul says there in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The way to be armed in this spiritual battle is to look to Christ and the victory that he already won. What does it mean to wear the belt of truth? It means to be strengthened by God's truth revealed in the gospel, which arms us against Satan and the world's lies. What does it mean to wear the breastplate of righteousness, but to clothe ourselves, the imputed righteousness of him who stood in our place, the the shoes of the gospel of peace, to both remind ourselves and share with others the peace that Christ has purchased through the blood of his cross. The shield of faith. That Paul says, um, arms us against the the flaming darts of the evil one, those darts which are his his well-aimed, well-timed, powerful, and often sudden and and unexpected accusations that he he hurls at us, his persistent reminders of your sin. When he tempts you to despair and tells you of guilt within, so you put on the the shield of faith to to take hold of, of Christ and his promises to deflect those accusations. Or perhaps it is the, the accusations or the, 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 the darts that come by way of temptation. So too, we take hold of the gospel of, of Christ and his promises. As Thomas Chalmers said long ago, that by the expulsive power of a, a, a truer and, and greater affection, our mouths might be put out of taste for those, those hooks with which the, the tempter loves to bait us. The shield of faith is the Lord Jesus Christ and his promises. The helmet of salvation, or that the helmet of the the hope of salvation is to remind yourself of the hope that Christ's victory now gives you even in the midst of this present battle, where there's suffering and hardship and difficulty. And the sword of the Spirit is to take up that word which is itself the word of Christ inspired by him and testifying chiefly of him and using that word like Christ in the wilderness when Satan seeks to tempt you and cause you to sin. You take up the word of Christ, do battle with the evil one, even as Christ himself has already done, yes, as our champion and representative, but also as our model. You see how every one of these pieces of armor points us to Jesus. There's a lot more that we could say about each of these these pieces of armor, the nuances of what it means to, to put on each one of them. But at its most basic level, what Paul is saying is put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. He is not merely calling us in this passage to a campaign of moral effort, but he is calling us to trust in the victory of our champion fitted in the armor that he has already worn, strengthened by his spirit for battle. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment, so we need the spirit of Christ to strengthen us. Again, that was so beautifully put in the the, the hymn there by by Wesley. It is the spirit of Christ and his strength on which we rely. We need him to fit us with the armor that he already wore all the way to the cross. 
We need the spirit of Christ who wore this armor worked in us by union and communion with him that we would not be defeated in this spiritual fight. So again, we need to confess our weakness. We need to take hold of the strength that Christ himself gives. His mighty strength, Paul says in verse 10. That the strength of his might, he wants to emphasize, this is, this is mighty strength, this is great strength, this is a strength stronger than the enemy. The strength by which he has already vanquished the armies of hell and guaranteed our final victory. And the strength by which uh, until then, until the attainment of that final victory, he, he uses to help us to stand firm against the schemes of the devil and to be strong the strength of his might. The way that he does this, the way that he equips and strengthens us, according to verse 18, is through prayer. Yes, of course, through words and, and sacrament, but prayer is what Paul here mentions, praying at all times in the Spirit. Paul calls us to confess our weakness He calls us to to trust and rely on God's mighty strength in Christ. And and the way that he calls us to take hold of that strength is through praying in the Spirit. I just want to spend the rest of our time here on verse 18, which which is not just a seventh piece of armor that that Paul is now calling us to put on. But you could say is is foundational uh, foundational for for the deployment of every one of these weapons. I think the way Wesley puts it, to keep your armor bright, attend with constant care, still walking in your captain's sight and watching unto prayer. The way to to keep your armor bright and shiny, according to Charles Wesley, is through vigilance in prayer. Um, Ian Duguid says similarly that, that prayer is the means by which all of our weaponry is kept effective. Remember, to to put on each of these things is at its most basic level to trust in and rely on the strength that is given through Christ. And how does Christ give that strength? Lord's Day 45 says, through prayer. It says that God will give his grace and his Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask him for these good gifts. It is not not the same thing that we see in Ephesians 6. The way to be given the strength of God's might to these six pieces of armor is by praying in the Spirit. One of the means by by which God imparts his grace and power to us, the Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 88 calls it a means of grace. I, I would suggest that Lord's Day 45 is not far from that when it says that prayer is the means by which God gives us his grace and Holy Spirit. And so do you wish to be strengthened and and equipped with the strength and power of our risen Lord Jesus in this spiritual fight that you're in against the devil, the world, and even your own sinful flesh? Paul is telling you the way to be strengthened, to stand firm, is through praying continually in the Spirit. Through a living dependence on the strength of our risen Lord Jesus. Through a continual confession 
that you are so weak that you cannot stand on your own even for a moment and your three sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and your own sinful flesh are too strong for you to withstand in your own strength and they never stop attacking you. And so the only way for you to stand firm, Paul is telling us, is on your knees in continual prayerful dependence on Christ. Saying, Lord, uphold me and make me strong by the power of your spirit, by the strength of your might, that I might not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist being able to stand against the schemes of the devil and against his fiery darts until I finally win the complete victory. The way to stay alert, Paul says in verse 18, is through prayer. The way to be alert to those schemes of the devil or to those fiery darts that he would love to to shoot at you is through prayer. To never let your guard down, but, but to make this prayer of question 127 your continual plea until you finally win the complete victory, which is to say, until kingdom come, as we, we uh, heard in Lord's Day 48, until that, that time when, when um, the, the kingdom fully comes and he will be all in all. Until that day we make this prayer our prayer. I can think of a few more helpful catechism questions to memorize than this one. Question 127, as you continue to be engaged in this spiritual fight all your life long, let this question teach you what it means to pray the sixth petition. Let it teach you what it means to cast yourself on the empowering grace of Christ's spirit. It means, first of all, to confess your weakness. It means then to lift your eyes and look to Christ who already fought this battle and won. And it means to then beg him to fill you with the strength of his might, the power of his spirit, so that you would likewise overcome. And put to death all of these sins of the flesh. And as we make that prayer our prayer, questions 128 and 129, then remind us that we can pray this prayer with confidence. We can pray this prayer with confidence because of the one through whom we pray it, the the one by whom we come to God and utter these words is our all-powerful king who is both willing and able to answer. In fact, it's more certain that God will hear this prayer than that you or I even feel in our hearts that we desire him to. What a comforting reminder that is as we sometimes pray this prayer in a a sort of half-hearted or inconsistent way that even more than you desire to overcome these enemies of the devil, the world, and your own flesh, Christ himself desires for you to. In fact, he is praying at the Father's right hand. He's interceding before the throne of his Father. Again, Ian Duguid says of, of verse 18, prayer is not a task that we carry out alone, but Jesus Christ himself lived the, the perfect prayer life that you and I never can, constantly communicating with his Father, constantly interceding for others, even for future followers like you and me. What's more, he is still praying for you. Hebrews 7 says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so we can be sure that God will answer this prayer. 
He wants to give us every incentive to pray this prayer in humble dependence on Christ our King, who already won the victory for us, who upholds us by the strength of his might and even intercedes for us in the midst of this battle for the throne of his Father. Paul wants to give us every incentive to pray this prayer in humble dependence on Christ our King. And then notice just one, one last thing that we or to pray this prayer, um, not only for ourselves, I want you to notice um, what it says towards the end of, of verse 18, where it says that we are to make supplication for all the saints. This, I think, is, is a helpful reminder, even of the very nature of the Lord's Prayer, that this whole prayer is prayed in, in the plural, our Father, lead us not into temptation. Uh, we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own. And so everything that we've just said about uh, prayerfully depending on the strength of Christ to put this armor on us and equip us for battle, we pray all of this for one another also. That God would give us the strength we need to overcome the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. This is a prayer that's prayed in community, in corporate dependence on Christ our King as together we bring our weakness to one another and then bring it together before him trusting in his strength. Let's do that now as we go to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we are weak, but Christ is strong. As we teach our children to sing that truth from infancy, I am weak, but he is strong. Lord, help us to continue to make that our prayer all our life long that we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment and so we need the strong arm of our strong Savior to lift us. His righteous and holy arm of which we heard in Isaiah 59 that we need to lift us and uphold us. And Lord, we see in this passage, that one of the chief means by which he, he does that, by which he upholds and strengthens us is through prayer, that you give your grace and your Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask you in prayer. And so as we respond to what we've just heard from your word, we pray, Lord, that you would make us to be a people who pray this prayer at all times in the spirit, who, who commit these words even to memory, reminding ourselves and preaching to us the, the gospel truth of our weakness and need for the strength of Christ. That we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to pray these things, to pray this sixth petition, not only for ourselves, but also for each other as we fight this battle together. You'd even help us increasingly to be open with one another about the ways that we might pray this sixth petition for each other specifically. We pray that you would then answer our prayers for Jesus' sake that we would not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but would firmly resist our enemy until we finally win the complete victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.